My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. By now, most Canadians are familiar with this pattern. A natural resource company wants some land, often to build a pipeline. But that land is First Nations territory, or at least disputed territory. So members of that First Nation, along with allies, stand up to defend their land, to make it difficult for construction of the pipeline to begin or continue. And then, and this is the part most Canadians know well, the RCMP moves in. Breaking down the door. Get that gun off me! Get your gun off me! Lower your gun! Over the past two plus years, the most visible example of this has been on Wet'suwet'en land in Northwest British Columbia. And the most notable incident during this ongoing protest has been a raid of the camp that led to dozens of arrests, including of two journalists. That was last November. And over the weeks and months that followed, attention drifted elsewhere even as the protest and arrests and surveillance continued. As is so often the case with these stories, it is once the media and public attention goes elsewhere that some of the deeper details begin to emerge. That's certainly the case here. So what do we now know about the raids on Wet'suwet'en land defenders that we didn't right after they happened? What have we learned about lines of communication between the RCMP and Coastal GasLink? And what's going on there right now? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Matt Simmons is the Northwest BC reporter for The Narwhal. Hi, Matt. Hello. Can you start by taking us back, I guess almost a year or so, and describing... Uh, a photo that you guys published in the Narwhal, but that also sort of became notorious beyond that of RCMP officers forcibly entering a house. Can you describe it and sort of tell us what was going on in that picture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the um, Wet'suwet'en land defenders and their supporters had occupied a coastal gas link pipeline work site um, just above the Wet'suwet'en, which is also known as the Maurice River. And at the top of a hill, they set up a tiny house um, just off the pipeline right-of-way. And that photo took place on the second day of RCMP enforcement um, to remove land defenders from occupation of pipeline work sites. At that moment, um, they had just used an axe that they found uh, lying around in the camp, or not lying around, but in the camp, and a chainsaw, 
to break down the door, and then you see the heavily armed tactical officers pointing uh, their weapons at the people inside, which were indigenous land defenders and supporters, and two journalists. It, yeah, it's quite <laughs> it's quite an image, that's for sure. I know that this is something uh, that's difficult to summarize, but I do want to get back to the beginning because um, the past year, the news cycle has been insane and memories fade uh, very quickly. Can you run us through why the Wet'suwet'en land defenders were up there and what Coastal Link was trying to do? Like, what, what's the genesis of this conflict? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's difficult to summarize quickly. It's it's one of these things that has so many layers and nuances and complexities. But, you know, it goes, well, it goes back to colonization, essentially, um, <laughs> which is to say that prior to colonization, uh, the Wet'suwet'en had... A system of governance. Um, it's a hereditary system, and that holds authority as uh, has been upheld in the Supreme Court of Canada in a landmark case that was um, del- delivered its ruling in 1997. It's called Delgamut Gestewe, and that affirmed that the Wet'suwet'en and neighboring Gitsan First Nation have never ceded their rights and title to the land. So fast forward to Coastal Gas Link putting a project on the table with the BC government and the hereditary chiefs say no, but the BC government and the proponent, which is uh, TC Energy, uh, formerly TransCanada, they go through due process through you know BC's laws to gain consent of elected chiefs and councils. So five out of six on Wet'suwet'en territory signed agreements with the province and the pipeline. Mm-hmm. The one exception being Hagwagat, which is uh, in Hazleton or near Hazleton. So essentially, uh, the hereditary chiefs have never given consent to the pipeline and the government authorized the pipeline and that's that's the, the the heart of the conflict. Hereditary chiefs say no. BC government says yes. Proponent says we've been authorized to do this, and we have these agreements in place. Um, so what's the big deal? Uh, where the land defenders are acting under the authority of the hereditary chiefs to um, do all they can to prevent it from going forward to protect their rights uh, over water and and land and resources. So they're defending the unceded territory. Yes. And this is where the conflict comes up. And I guess, is it the BC government that gives the RCMP the green light to go ahead? Who makes that call uh, ultimately that now is when we'll start enforcement and we'll bust into houses and start arresting people? Yeah, the BC government does authorize uh, deployment of resources, but ultimately the RCMP has discretion over when to enforce. So there's also this other layer of complexity, which is the BC Supreme Court granted an injunction against anyone impeding progress um, on the pipeline. And so the RCMP are acting on that authority, which is uh, a court-ordered injunction to remove people who are blocking or impeding construction. RCMP has the discretion as to when it enforces and how it enforces and specifically has uh, discretion over how it conducts arrests, for example. So Mm -hmm. back to that image, 
the RCMP ultimately made that choice. Um, they received authorization to deploy extra resources to do so, but they have the final say. This all happened in a span of about two days, um, and it made headlines across the country. There weren't a lot of explanations then. Tell me about your investigation over the course of the past year. What have you tried to find out and how? Um, I guess when it first happened, as most people are probably aware, the RCMP also arrested two journalists who were inside the tiny house at the time of you know, forcing entry. So that was Amber Bracken, who was on assignment for the Narwhal, and a freelance documentary filmmaker, Michael Toledano. Um, that really blew up in the news. Um, Is it fair to say it blew up in a way that it might not have if it was only uh, Indigenous land defenders being arrested by the RCMP? I think that's very fair to say, yes. And it's, you know, this is this is not something that is necessarily new. Mm-hmm. Um, RCMP, or if you look at it in a global scale, you know, the suppression of media coverage of police conduct is this is something that just keeps coming up again and again and again. So shortly after all this went down, so it was a Thursday and a Friday, there were two, two days of, of intense police activity, uh, 14 arrests on the first day, I believe 15 on the second. That weekend I was busy working on how, how to provide coverage of what happened since our photojournalist was incarcerated right. al- along with all her uh, her photos mm-hmm. and my managing editor Mike D'Souza he filed he immediately filed some access to information requests to, to get to the the bottom of what exactly happened because we were all in the dark really we you know there was no the, the sort of public statements that the RCMP was giving um, which were echoed by you know BC ministers and federal ministers we were skeptical uh, I think is the right word. And uh, so he filed these requests. I continued on with my reporting on the ground. And then we started gathering what we could, which is, you know, audio recordings, video uh, footage, um, and then went to the courts, asked for affidavits that were filed with courts, um, basically anything we could get our hands on to check to see if the public messaging was indeed accurate or if it was perhaps misleading. What did you get back uh, from the access to information requests? Maybe without going into exactly what's in them right now, because we're going to do that. But but when you ask for this stuff, what do you get? Um, <laughs> it's actually really interesting. So Mike filed, you know, two two batches of requests, I guess. Um, one one batch to through the federal process which were directly to the RCMP. And the other batch was to the BC Ministry of Public Safety and Solicitor General. What we got back from each was very different. The RCMP, the federal stuff, was heavily redacted. There wasn't much there. Um, what, what you're seeing essentially is internal emails and communications regarding operations and enforcement. Okay. The, the BC side of things was less redacted, still redacted, but less redacted. And it offered more of an insight into how the RCMP was conveying information to senior government officials 
about what it was doing. Hmm. And this is leading up to, during, and after the arrests. So you've got two big batches. You start looking through them, you and Mike, and I imagine uh, at least another staffer or two, because there's a lot of it. What's the first thing that immediately jumps out to you guys? Well, there, there are two things, really. One was around the arrests of the journalists. So there was some information in there. It referenced uh, the Brake decision. So this is Justin Brake. And they are saying that they instructed all of their officers on the ground to maintain a standard as defined by that case. Basically, you know, journalists have a right to be there. Here are the, the guidelines for determining what a journalist actually is. And then they went on to say that uh, CERG, so CERG is the Community Industry Response Group, mm-hmm. uh, which is a special unit set up by the RCMP in 2017 to police uh, protests of industrial projects, essentially. Um, they say that they are preparing a package for the courts that will essentially justify arresting the journalists. So that package never materialized, Hmm. which is something that stood out to us immediately. And then the other thing that stood out uh, to us was a series of communications between Assistant Commissioner Eric Stubbs. So he's the second in command in BC of the RCMP. And he seemed to be having communications with the Office of the Wet'suwet'en, which is a nonprofit organization that uh, works on behalf of and for the hereditary chiefs about a summit meeting, uh, a meeting to resolve the situation peacefully. But when we looked at the dates and times, they were in these conversations at a point that they had already received approval to deploy the extra resources to conduct the raids that they did. So those two things really stood out to us as being two key points. We have the one, the journalists and their justification for arresting them, which never seemed to go anywhere. And then this, uh, this attempt to resolve the situation peacefully, but they'd already decided not to do so. Um, so yeah, those were the two, <laughs> two main points that when we saw them, we wanted to know more. Did you show this evidence to the hereditary chiefs? Um, I got on a call with Chief Namox and I just talked him through it. How did they react? How did he react? Um, honestly, he wasn't surprised. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think from his perspective, he's seen this now for, for a very long time. Um, he's seen the, the conduct on the ground. He's also been in all these meetings and he's had discussions with senior government officials, had conversations with RCMP and yeah, frankly, he, he said, you know, it's, this is pretty much what I expect from them. I, I don't expect anything less, I believe, is the, the words he used. What did the RCMP say? Um, I guess Stubbs in particular, when you asked about the apparent contradictions. It was very interesting going through communications with RCMP. We put questions directly to Stubbs and to the gold commander of the community industry response group, but then the answers were funneled back through their media communications department. At first, it was really hard to 
figure out if if Stubbs and and Brewer were actually responding, uh, although the responses would be in the first person. Hmm. So that was an indication that yes, they were indeed the ones responding to it. As for you know the the responses from Stubbs, you know, with that contradiction between having the meeting and already having received approval, he denied an allegation that a source told me, you know, described it, including the mocks, described it as a form of blackmail. He denied that. He said the situation was there were people trapped behind the blockades. Uh, there were approximately 500 workers uh, at two man camps behind where land defenders had closed access and said, I believe it would be difficult um, to convene a summit meeting in the time allotted. They needed to get in there, in other words. And this was a consistent narrative. They described it as a rescue mission, essentially, for these workers. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you were also gathering uh, recordings, videos, anything that was made sort of on the ground while those arrests were happening. What kind of stuff did you get from that? I'll, I'll give full credit to Amber Bracken here because she had the, um, the wherewithal to start recording a voice memo on her phone, I guess, uh, as, as the police were forcing entry into that tiny house. And thankfully, it just kept running until her phone eventually died. Hmm. So in the, in the first few minutes or, you know, first 20 minutes or so, uh, you hear her asking officers about the break decision and if they're aware of it. And they say, no, they're not aware of it, um, which the RCMP told us that all of the officers on the ground were briefed on the break decision. So there was a bit of a contradiction there. Um, and then later, as I understand it from listening to the audio, it, it gets, it's all over the place and, and there's all kinds of, you know, horrible noises as, you know, her phone is presumably being packed into a bag or a box or a tote or something. Mm -hmm. But, uh, Later, you hear a couple of RCMP officers uh, joking about the people they arrested and and making some really uh, horrible comments, very you know racist and derogatory comments about the people they arrest and and just laughing about it. Um, it was hard to listen to, frankly. It's really hard to listen to. Did you get a chance to ask anybody uh, through the RCMP comms uh, department, I guess, um, about that? Yeah, I did ask. The response was they for first they they wanted me to provide a copy of the recording, um, but as per you know journalistic ethics guidelines, we don't provide anything we've acquired. But we offered to play it for them. Um, I I offered to get on the phone with them and play them the recordings, and then ask them to comment on it. And they they declined. They said uh, they would need. 
they would need a copy of the recording to cross-check it with who was on the ground. In the months since, has there been any reflection of Amber Bracken shouldn't have been arrested? Uh, those were horrible comments made by our officers and, you know, we'll look for discipline. Um, or is the public face of this that we had to do this and we did it and that's it? That's pretty much it. Yeah, the the public the public face of it and and all the responses that they gave to our our requests or you know our questions um, were pretty much they're they're sticking to their guns. They're staying staying the course on we did this. We were enforcing an injunction. It's it's all above board essentially. What's happening on that land right now? There's a lot happening on the land right now. It's um, it's really tense, to be honest, um, and and unpleasant. So, the community industry response group has been conducting daily patrols. Um, that's how they describe it to me when I ask questions around the Gidimden camp, which is a, a reoccupation of the land which is off the road. It's not blocking any, any work sites. And there's, you know, a, a cabin there, uh, sort of like a, a two-story cabin, a uh, series of small structures, outhouse, fire pit. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a gathering place. Across the street, there's um, a series of tiny houses at the confluence of Lamprey Creek and the Wetsinkwa River. And... RCMP have been going into these spaces multiple times a day. Earlier in the year, it was in the middle of the night. They come, you know, three, four in the morning. And we're talking, you know, anywhere from six to 15 officers. And they come in and they walk around. They don't actually go into any of the tents or, or structures, but they, they walk through the gates and, Coastal GasLink security is also posted right outside the camps. There's usually two trucks sitting there. They video uh, anyone walking on the road or, or you know, being present in that area. And the land defenders and and you know the Wet'suwet'en community members who are out there are uh, understandably not happy about <laughs> that uh, continued presence in in their territory. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's a lot of you know there will be words exchanged and and heated exchanges and the police will go, but it's uh, it's quite something. The what Soitn are currently building a feast hall uh, right at Lamprey Creek there, and uh, since they started building, there seems to have been an increase in in RCMP presence, which I haven't been out since the feast hall. They started building the feast hall, but. When you watch those social media posts, it's, it's pretty, it's just, it just has a, an ugly tone to it, all of it. This is perhaps a dumb question, but is the pipeline currently being built right now? Yeah, it's, it's proceeding. Um, so this is another thing about, you know, being out there, um, which you don't really see um, in media coverage. This, this road, it's, it's, way, it's way out there. It's, you know, I don't know, 45 minutes from the nearest town-ish. But it's like a super highway uh, for for construction. So there are constantly trucks going and and heavy vehicles, you know, equipment going back and forth um, from town and out to the site. And 
while they the uh, the pipeline company has closed access to the location where the camps were, where the arrests happened, the tiny house, that you know iconic image. That's the the drill site. So they're planning to drill under the river, which is certainly a point of contention for for those who don't want to see the project go ahead. Um, but yeah, there's lots of activity going on. My last question, I guess, is what happens next? Even given all we've just discussed about last November and that action, you've also just described an increasingly untenable situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, frankly, I'm I'm concerned about the possibility of of it just get, getting worse. You know, more more arrests or or I don't I don't even know. It's it's hard to know what happens next, right? Mm-hmm. It's um, my understanding right now, um, and as has been seen in in media, is the land defenders and their supporters are trying to take it to the international stage. So. The United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination issued a third rebuke to Canada um, about the um, the pipeline and and especially about the police and security presence and has called on Canada to remove RCMP and private security forces from Wet'suwet'en territory immediately. And this is the third time they've asked for that. And so I, I feel like there's a almost a sense of desperation and appeal to the international community to to support that and to pre- prevent any further conflict on the ground. One last question. Has the BC government given any indication that they're willing to step up and help uh, find a conclusion, if not to tell the RCMP to back down? Like, what are they saying about this? It's been quite some time now. They are surprisingly um, tight-lipped about it, to be honest. So I also, you know, always submit questions to, for example, the likes of the Ministry of Public Safety and Solicitor General. And those questions that I ask are rarely answered directly, if at all. And whenever I press for for answers um, or follow up with extra questions based on their responses, I'm often met with a, you know, we've, we've said all we can say about this. I know there are people within the BC government who continue to speak with the hereditary chiefs, but my understanding is the hereditary chiefs don't really see it as a good faith process without first removing the RCMP from the territory. I mean, can't blame them for that. No. Matt, thank you so much for explaining this to us and and our listeners. I think a lot of us probably didn't have an idea of just how tense it still was there. And, uh, and we'll keep in touch with you guys as we go forward. Yeah, thank you for having me. Matt Simmons of the Narwhal. That was the big story. For more, including previous coverage of the Wet'suwet'en Land Defenders, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us anytime on Twitter or just follow us for fun at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us again for fun or just to say nice things. The address is hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca and you can call if you wanna and leave a voicemail 416-935-5935. You can find this podcast in every single podcast player, including a player called Fountain, 
which apparently now allows you to earn minuscule amounts of Bitcoin for listening to podcasts. I want no part of that, but if you do, please earn your Bitcoin listening to The Big Story. Thank you for listening and earning Bitcoin. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.